0: We are at an extraordinary moment in world history right now.
1: Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And this is our weekly roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's panel, returning to the Roundup, Senior Advisor at the California Latino Economic Institute, my fellow co-founder of the Lincoln Project. He also lectures on race, class, and partisanship at USC, and he's the only person who's been on the Roundup more than I have in the last three weeks. Mike Madrid, welcome back.
0: That's a great record to, to be aware of. So yeah, you caught me off guard there. Great <laughs> to be with you. A lot of news today. Looking forward to this one.
1: A lot of news. Also returning to the Roundup is our friend Matt Bennett. Matt is a co-founder at Third Way and executive vice president for public affairs. He earned his JD from UVA law. He's a veteran of both Bill Clinton's presidential campaigns and served as deputy assistant to the president for intergovernmental affairs in the Clinton White House. Matt, as always, it's great to have you back on the show.
2: Always great to be here.
1: Up first this week, President Biden's trip to Israel to meet with Prime Minister Netanyahu and express America's support of Israel during their time of war, including this information war. Next, the House of Representatives is on its 17th day without a speaker. We're going to talk about Jim Jordan's pause in his bid to become speaker, the plan to name a temporary speaker, and what this means for MAGA's position in the House. Finally, for our Politicology Plus subscribers, we're going to talk about the Trump legal development you haven't heard about, namely his eligibility to be president again under the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. To get ad free access to the show, plus many more special episodes, on a private podcast feed, Head on over to politicology.com slash plus or click the link at the top of your show notes today. On Wednesday, President Biden spent nearly eight hours in wartime Israel. His mission was to display resolve for Israel and attempt to quell the likelihood of a wider war while also providing assurances that he was not overlooking the increasingly dire humanitarian situation in Gaza. Biden met with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, along with first responders, doctors, and victims who witnessed the gruesome terror attacks carried out by Hamas. Against a backdrop of alternating American and Israeli flags, Biden told the group, I come to Israel with a single message. You are not alone. As long as the United States stands, and we will stand forever, we will not let you ever be alone. Netanyahu described Biden's visit as deeply, deeply moving. And I'd love to know, just as we kick off here, what both of you are thinking about this trip, how you're thinking about it. But I have to say, from my perspective, I don't think there's been a moment during Biden's presidency when I have felt more proud of him and more proud to have him as the leader of America, the leader of the free world, than I have been this week and, and through the way he's handled this crisis. Matt, do you want to lead off?
2: You know, I feel exactly the same way. I think that he has been just a spectacular leader here. He has shown exactly the level of resolve and determination, and empathy and and wisdom that America desperately needs in a moment of enormous pain for a whole bunch of us. Uh, and he is exactly the man for the job. He also showed why while his age is obviously going to be an issue in this election, with age comes wisdom and empathy and experience. He has known Bibi Netanyahu, has been dealing with that part of the world for decades. And his deft touch in the last week comes from all of that experience. So I was really proud of him. Mike,
1: how about you? And what's the significance of Netanyahu inviting Biden to make this visit?
0: Well, look, I I think, let me step back real quickly and say, uh, look, I think it was a very impressive week uh, on behalf of the president, as everybody's saying. I I mean, I agree with it. This is the leadership that not just the country needs, but frankly, that the world needs right now. But let's also be mindful. This is his second time into a war zone. (laughs) I mean, this guy, he went to Ukraine. This, This guy, this guy goes into danger and he's He's keenly aware, I think, of the global conflicts that are, are, are arising and developing, and I think that um, his his willingness to go into harm's way, um, I, I think, is very um, important politically. I think it's who he is. Um, I think it's how he's constituted, and I think that it's gonna it's gonna the, the way he handles himself. I think the contrast between where the world is likely heading in the next 18 months to two years and the chaos that is going to be unfolding, I think his calm demeanor, his steady hand, his cooler uh, temperament is going to be really important as voters start to tune in and start looking at the contrast between him and what a Donald Trump would be doing in this moment at this time. I know, look, Trump has said he's going to go to Israel uh, too. And I think I think that's probably going to be um, important for voters to see, that just the, the sharp contrast between the leadership styles. It's easy to be critical of a president uh, as an incumbent, um, especially as they're trying to have their policies work their way through the system. I think it's something entirely different when voters have to make a binary choice between two people. And I think as much as people have lamented the fact that this will probably be a Biden-Trump rematch again... Um, it's exactly the styles that I think helped uh, Biden be successful in the first place in beating Donald Trump. That will probably resurrect his fortunes uh, in the coming in the coming months.
1: Initially, Biden was going to meet with Jordan's King Abdullah II and President of the Palestinian Authority Mahmoud Abbas, uh, as well as Egyptian President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi in Jordan, and those plans were upended after reports that 500 Palestinians died in an explosion at a hospital in Gaza. Now, initially, major news sources, including the New York Times, reported that Israel had struck the hospital, and they ran this headline based on information from Hamas. The original New York Times banner was, "Israel Israeli strike kills hundreds in hospital, Palestinians say. Israel then denied responsibility They've said they did not have an aircraft operating in the area during the strike. They've also released recordings of intercepted communications that show the hospital was hit by a rocket fired by another Gaza based terrorist group, a Hamas ally called Palestinian Islamic Jihad. The U.S. National Security Council has assessed that Israel was not responsible for the blast. The U.S. officials told CNN separately that the initial evidence gathered by the U.S. intelligence community suggests the strike came from a rocket launched by Islamic Jihad. And the audio intercepts include a conversation that takes place between two Hamas terrorists as they realize what they had done, that it was one of Islamic Jihad's rockets misfired from a graveyard behind the hospital and fell on them. And they even discussed that it was local shrapnel and not Israeli shrapnel. Several Arab countries, including Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Egypt, and the UAE, and Iraq, have issued statements condemning Israel and accusing its military of bombing the hospital. Even after the U.S. intelligence assessment, uh, Michigan Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib continued to claim that Israel was responsible for the blast. And it's worth noting one of the journalists whose name is on the byline of the New York Times headline, blaming Israel, is a recent Columbia J School grad and an intern for Rashida Tlaib. Violent protests then erupted across the Middle East rioters stormed the Israeli consulate in Jordan. Protesters gathered outside the British and French embassies in Iran early Wednesday morning. Uh, In Istanbul, rioters threw fireworks and flaming projectiles at the Israeli embassy. Rioters in Beirut, Lebanon, started a fire at the U.S. embassy, and Jordan canceled the planned summit between Biden and the presidents of Egypt and the Palestinian Authority. So since the blast on Tuesday, the Gaza Health Ministry, which just as a reminder for listeners, when you see this reported, it is run by Hamas. They have charged their, they have changed their reported death toll from 500 or more to hundreds. We haven't been able to find an independently confirmed figure. The head of a nearby hospital said in an interview shortly after the blast that 150 to 200 people were killed in the explosion, uh, were taken to the hospital along with 300 other people who had been wounded. Photos of the site show that the rocket actually hit the parking lot of the hospital, not any of the hospital buildings. Uh, There was damage to some of the surrounding buildings. Um, Windows were shattered, roof tiles blown off a church. But the responsible party, the damage, and the casualties reported by the paper of record were wrong. And they were printed based on the word of a terrorist organization, seemingly without scrutiny. So I want to pause there before we continue and ask you both how you're thinking about this failure of news organizations during a time of enormous uncertainty and crisis. Matt?
2: I think it's a catastrophic error on the part of the New York Times and others who reported it this way. I mean, let's not forget, Judith Miller's reporting in the New York Times helped lead us into an absolutely catastrophe of the war in Iraq. Um, the, the New York Times got it wrong about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Now, to be fair, so did the CIA and so did Colin Powell and a whole bunch of other people. But if you're the paper of record and if you purport to be you know, reporting all the news that's fit to print, you better not report in the fog of war information that you get from Hamas and And it is an incredibly irresponsible act on the part of the New York Times to have run that headline, which, as you say, led directly to two very, very bad things. One is just a convulsion of violence all over the Mediterranean, and two, worse, the canceling of the meetings that the president was supposed to have with Arab leaders in the region that were intended to work out relief for the people of Gaza who, let's not sugarcoat this, are suffering horribly as a result of what Hamas did in Israel and and the Israeli response. The people that have suffered as a result of this horrible mistake are the people of Gaza, but also the people of Israel who were improperly fingered in doing something terrible that they did not do.
1: Yeah. Mike, as our friend George Conway put it, Hamas perpetrated a hoax, but the news sources fell for it. How are you thinking about this particular incident?
0: I, look, I think the term "catastrophic" is is right on. I mean, it's a, it's a failing of of the the you know the, the world's paper of record, not just the nation's paper of record. And obviously, there mm. are some really significant consequences to that failure um uh, w- what frightens me uh, is as as we're barreling down into this bold new era this of 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 digital warfare and information warfare is it's not just the the twitters the x's of the world that are uh, you know getting it wrong where where we're trying to find what's right or what's wrong um the 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 the, the black eye that this gives uh, to the to the times is is extraordinary. and again, mistakes are made, but not on something like this. <laughs> I mean, you can't get this wrong. You can't like this is literally you're the backstop of 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 you're the purveyor of of credible objective news and information. You're going to be under and have been under heightened scrutiny for so long, and you just can't you can't make a mistake like this. Uh, because it makes it so much more complicated to get people to to buy into and believe information the next time, and as we're in this information war, it's only going to get messier, right? It's only going to get more complicated to discern fact from fiction and 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 parse sources. And when we're already as a society devolving into our own media silos. This just really, really accelerates that trend, and it's just—it's—it's. It's, I think one of the the biggest, you know, casualties of this war so far, right? Is they say truth is usually the first casualty of war. Uh, the, the credibility of the messengers to 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 kind of tell us what is happening. Um, it, it's just—it's—it's—it is—it's—it's it's mind blowing how significant I think this is going to be going forward.
1: Yeah, it as soon as I started to sort of unravel the story and I obviously obviously like both of you watched it play out in real time. The the consequences um I mean, look, to to me it became really clear that Hamas landed an enormously successful blow for them in the information war because it tricked the world into believing its lie with the help of, you know, the most prestigious news outlets in the world and you know, Mike, you and I have talked at length on this show about information warfare. And I think for some people, maybe it can occasionally sound like an abstract idea or something without real tangible consequences. And this was one instance in which it was just abundantly clear that, that as Matt put it, you know, one of the most important casualties of this otherwise hopeful trip uh, that Biden took was the summit that never was with the Arab leaders, and along with it, the better dialogue and cooperation toward improved conditions for for gazans and and an effort to prevent escalating conflict in the region, for example, to tamp down on hezbollah and lebanon and now that seems uh, ever more fraught um, and and it it 's very clear uh who 's responsible for that and um and i don 't know what we do um, as a, as a, as, as people who are looking for facts, um, as responsibly reported as possible. I don't know what we do now with the reputation of the world's paper of record, as you put it, other than hope they don't do it again. Like it, it puts, it puts ordinary observers of the news of this war in a really difficult position. Um, where do you then look for good information? You know, the citizen journalism movement has gotten a bad rap for a lot of, you know, reasonable uh, reasons. But if you can't trust the paper of record to give you, you know, just the facts, thanks, then I don't blame people for looking, seeking out uh, their own sources and coming to their own conclusions. I just, it's a, it's a very difficult situation, um, and I, for me, personally, I have a very difficult time giving them a pass or saying, we'll do better next time, because I don't believe that they will. Um, Matt, am I being um, unreasonable?
2: <laughs> no, but I am a little more bullish on the times. Uh, for one thing, um, real news outlets acknowledge when they make mistakes. And I presume that the time, well, the time's has at least implicitly acknowledged that by changing its headline and changing its story. Uh, But if you look at fake news outlets or, or news outlets that peddle baloney like Fox, they don't ever admit mistakes. I mean, Fox peddled the big lie for a long time and then had to be sued into admitting that they were lying about it. Uh, The times will not have to be sued into admitting that they got this one wrong. And let's face it, it's indispensable. We have to have the New York Times. Uh, But I think we all have to once again learn the lesson that the fog of war is real, that the stuff that we hear in wartime is often wrong. The first reports are often wrong. I don't know if it's usually, but it's certainly often. And, And everyone needs to take a deep breath when something major happens in war before we jump to conclusions it's very hard to do but but it's a lesson we have to keep learning
1: yeah yeah i think it's it, i would just like to remind any reporters that are listening that part of hamas's goal is to turn the world against israel and to wipe them off of the map and to eradicate jewish people across the globe and so when you are receiving information from hamas run organizations like the Gaza Ministry of Health the Palestinian Ministry of Health it it demands extraordinary scrutiny more so certainly uh than than you would ordinarily give to any NGO operating in the region and so i just feel like and, and i have a couple of Pieces here from Hamas's charter, lest anyone think that I'm being hyperbolic. Let me read to you from Article 7 of Hamas's charter. The day of judgment will not come about until Muslims fight Jews and kill them. Then the Jews will hide behind rocks and trees, and the rocks and trees will cry out, Oh, Muslim, there is a Jew hiding behind me. Come and kill him. That's Article 7. In the preamble, Israel will exist and will continue to exist until Islam will obliterate it, just as it obliterated others before it. And then finally, Quote so-called peace solutions and international conferences are in contradiction to the principles of the Islamic resistance movement, also known as Hamas. So it should not be um confusing to you about the intentions of the people who are providing you this information. So uh, I just uh, I've been pretty astounded at the way a lot of things have been reported and, and just like, I don't want to overdo it here, but I want to underscore the fuck up and the magnitude of it and and sort of, plead with journalists to get their heads screwed on right about how they're covering this thing um, in the first place. Mike, do you want to say a little bit about information warfare in general just to reprise this concept we're talking about?
0: We are at an extraordinary moment in world history right now. We just are. Things are going to change. They're going to change dramatically. And it's, it's going to be, um, to, to put it diplomatically, it's going to be very uncomfortable as we, you know, emerge into this new global order. Um, Having said that, I also want people to remember this is not a new dynamic, right? Information warfare has been around (laughs) since warfare has been around. We just have these really advanced tools and the pace at which we're trying to get information out there is part of what the media's problem is, This race to be first and break news instantaneously I think is part of the the self inventory that media outlets are going to have to really take a step back and say, wait a second, are we are we compromising quality in order to get out there first? And I want people to remember, you know, the Spanish American War was a direct result of what was called yellow journalism at the time, which was fake news. Okay. <laughs> The Spanish never attacked American interests, but that was what was glaringly, you know, top of the fold in all of the Hearst newspapers, which were the largest newspapers in the country at the time. It was literally manufactured news. and we we recovered from that time period. We recovered from that type of 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 journalism. And that's clearly not what the New York Times was doing. But I don't want us to believe or fall into the trap that the institution of the of the media, has been you know, forever sullied or it's ir- 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 irredeemable or it's forever changed because of social media. This is a technological change. There are going to have to be some new ways of looking at the way they're producing the product and getting to market what we all as a healthy society need to have and need to consume. I have no doubt that they will. I have also no doubt that they will make mistakes as they just did along the way. So look, and we need to hold them to account. By the way, this is not a get out of jail free card. This was a very, very serious fuck up, like really bad. And again, lives are at risk, stability is at risk, World War III is at risk. You can't, you can't get this stuff wrong. Now, having said that, like I said, this is this is not unprecedented. The the, the challenge, of course, is going to is whether or not media, as we know it is is organizationally capable of evolving into this new type of warfare with the speed and the pace at which information is coming at them and when to go with a story from what source when, again, they're trying to be first, right? They're trying to get out there ahead of everybody or they're trying to be at least in the pack of everybody else. And that, that those types of guardrails, I think, are really what we need uh, to recognize is that is that being first is not is not the goal. Being correct, being right, being accurate is. So, how do you then
1: balance that sort of mandate with the reality that false information will fill a vacuum, and as it as we know, it takes time to gather facts. That it's hard to find truth, especially in a situation like this. What do you? How do how do you then you know mitigate the shit from flooding the zone? To, to borrow Steve Bannon's words,
0: well, look, I mean, from my opinion, reporting the fact that an event occurred was sufficient, right? There, there's been a you know a hospital was hit. The story unfolding. We're working on it. We're going to get you accurate information as we get it. The problem here was was that they 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 took bad information. Uh, and 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 place the blame on on the IDF, and not only that, but I mean they were saying 500 dead. I mean that, that's a, a massive amount of death at a hospital. By the way, what the hell are rocket launchers doing in a cemetery behind a hospital? In the first that's place,
1: what, yeah, that's what they do. Of course they do. Right, <laughs> right. that's exactly <laughs> uh, what Hamas yeah, does. Of course. So right. so
0: there's all there's all sorts of questions that need to be asked about this stuff, right? But as we as the fog of war lifted in the morning, and we got to see what actually happened, it's highly unlikely from that parking lot that was hit by a three foot by three foot crater that hundreds died. Highly unlikely. I mean, we're not seeing bodies or photos. At least I haven't seen them of of, of legitimate photographs of bodies being moved out or being you know dug out of the rubble. It's highly unlikely that hundreds died. And again, this is just. Hamas's way of, 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 of bleeding out the story uh, for their own, their own purposes. So look, th- there are ways to report activity. There are re- ways to report things without jumping to conclusions. That, that That's sufficient to say story developing, right? That's what we need. This happened. We're not confirming or denying anything that, that, uh, that, that we've, we've been told from one source. We're working on it. That's what journalists do.
1: Now, I want to uh, turn before we go to our uh, next segment, I want to turn for a moment to the politics that may be playing out inside the Democratic Party, or at least on the left. And I'm just really curious about your insights here. Um, after Biden spoke, the official uh, POTUS Instagram account posted a video of an excerpt of his speech, beautiful speech, where he said that you can't look at the atrocities Hamas has committed over the last two weeks and not scream out for justice. And I, uh, again, disclaimer, the internet is not real life, right? Um, but perceptions are important. And I was really struck by the attacks that were coming at him from the left in the comments section, almost unanimously through, I had to scroll for minutes on end before I found one positive comment thanking him for the way he's handling this crisis. Everything was from, ranging from you're wrong to vicious disagreement uh, and, at, you know, people calling him a liar, saying he and Israel are carrying out a genocide in Gaza. People saying uh, he needs to resign, that he has blood of children on his hands. Um, many cited claims that Israel had bombed the hospital. We talked earlier about uh, Congresswoman Talib continuing to say that Israel bombed the hospital. Last week, Mike and Lucy Caldwell and Rena Shah discussed the DSA rally uh, in support of Hamas in New York City. Other DSA chapters put out statements in support of the terrorism. Black Lives Matter Chicago chapter posted a graphic celebrating the terrorist attack with a Hamas hang glider, like a picture of it. So I just wonder um, how you're thinking about this fight among the left, about how Biden, how the White House is handling this. Um, And we should note that the vast majority of Democratic elected leaders have come out in support of the president and uh, and and of Israel, and so um, I'm I'm wondering if this how how significant the pushback is among the Democratic base to uh, to the president here, um, and any other insights you might be able to give us?
2: Yeah, the the response of some, not all, but some on the far left, has ranged from nauseating and vile to idiotic. Uh, The nauseating and vile has been what you described, the applause for the Hamas attacks on Israel that we hardly need to document were incredibly horrifying. Um, And anyone applauding terrorism is a terrible person and should be driven out of our coalition. We don't want people involved in the progressive coalition that think that uh, attacking innocence is acceptable behavior. Um, then there were people that were less insane but were responding to this with uh, a level of anger at directed at Biden that isn 't justified and and does uh, kind of discount. The pain that Hamas inflicted on Israel, and the fact that what is happening in Gaza is a direct and proximate result of Hamas's actions. And so uh, I think there are a range of responses. But I think most importantly, unlike Republicans who reflect the lunacy of their base in the lunacy of their members, that is not happening in Democratic politics, with the exception of two members, both of whom you named. Democrats are four square in behind President Biden in his response to this. They recognize the horror of what happened in Israel. They recognize the necessity to deal with Hamas. Many of them, including me, are deeply worried about the impact uh, to civilians and innocents in, Hamas, in in Gaza of of what has happened and and they should be. It's it's a terrible humanitarian crisis and the president is very mindful of this. But uh, but they get that this is a complicated and, and difficult situation that the president is handling with real skill and deafness. So I think the isolation uh, of the far left in this circumstance has really given me a lot of heart because I think Democrats have responded very appropriately and uh, and very strongly to the people who are acting badly.
1: Yeah, that's helpful and well said. Mike, this is a Really clear instance in which Biden uh, is in strong opposition, obviously to the left wing of his party. How do you think this impacts you know the Trump campaigns, the Fox New- the Fox News operation, the narrative that Biden's completely beholden to the squad? Because I've seen that start to fire up.
0: I-, I think it's a it's a more real threat than people realize because I think that the era of you know triangulating. Uh, is is over. I think those days are a relic of a, of a, of a previous time. I don't think that that strategy works. Uh, I don't want to say it doesn't work at all. I, I think it's it's having much less effect. There was a time when you could you have your sister soldier moment, right? And points to the, the extremes on your left and credibly lock yourself into the center. Um, I, I think increasingly both parties' brands are defined by their weakest links, by their most extreme Members and by the most extreme elements. Now let's be clear. The Democratic Party is the only healthy party in America today. There, there is a true range of, of you know, moderates to progressive that, that really exists. That's, that's really not the case uh, on the American right. So so I think that, that theory will be tested a little bit. But what I do believe is that we don't know where public opinion is at on this yet. And we're not going to know. Until uh, in an accurate way, right? If you went out and polled right now, and I'm sure there's a bunch of news groups that are polling to find out what this all means, any information you're getting in this environment is not good information, (laughs) right? Um, When when we see what the IDF and Israel's response is, and as that starts to develop as part of it, we're going to start to see what public opinion actually does here. And that's a few weeks away. And again, that assumes that the conflagration in the Middle East doesn't spread and get bigger and become something even more. So this is, as I was saying last week, this is a very fluid situation. It's a very poor time to gauge public opinion and public sentiment. It's an extraordinarily emotional time. And we're seeing that. We're seeing that in our elected officials. We're seeing that in members of Congress. We're seeing that on social media. We're seeing that all over the place where you know, you're, you're, you're castigated by either side based on what you say or you don't say. And for heaven's sake, just saying that you're worried about innocence and children, both sides jump on you, you know, saying that you're not really on the side of righteousness because of, of how you, you know, articulated the the death of those children and what children and, and in what manner. And it's just this horrible moment where it's like, my God, like step back and realize that this is, this is how, world wars start like this is a highly emotional time and it's a time where we need to and again this is where i really want to credit biden is is to have that cooler head that prevails this is not a time to act out of rage it's it's just not it's, there's rarely ever a good time to act out of rage but certainly in a in a moment like this and i think that that was the right message at the right time but we don't know where public opinion genuinely is at i think it's clearly moving towards a stronger support level for for Israel and the Israelis um because that's where you know that's where the atrocities have happened at this moment in time we're going to see what happens with with the response and what gaza what happens in gaza and and again to the earlier point 90% of this is going to be communicating what is and what is not happening and the the yeah. information wars and these very sophisticated propaganda machines that both sides have are going to be very aggressively employed into this and it's not just a typical fog of war both sides have these very sophisticated fog machines designed designed to confuse um yeah and then and then message into that so it's 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 a very volatile moment right now in the world
1: yeah i just want to end this segment with a, with where we started which is just how uh how grateful i am that Joe Biden is the president right now. And it just reminds me of the stakes of this job. And in 2020, when we were sort of fighting, sweating, bleeding to get him elected, uh, just how much we were concerned about a moment such as this, right? when I, I just i shudder to think what a president trump would be doing in this situation and I, and i um and i know i am certainly one of the people who's been critical of biden's age and worried about it um and the last 11 days or so have made me feel um certainly more comforted by the wisdom and experience that comes with that age especially in a moment of global crisis. Um, so I wonder, Matt, maybe you can close us out of this segment, whether you think that's likely to sink in to the electorate as we, as we plow forward into 2024 and, um, maybe put in context for people, the threat of, for example, a no labels ticket, um, and, and the potential consequences of, of that. And, you
2: know, That that is my personal hobby horse. I'd be happy to jump back on that. Uh, but, But first, on the question of whether people will learn the lesson that Joe Biden's age has upside, I think they will. And I think the big question around age is when will it become a contrast and not just a focus on one guy? I mean, Joe Biden and Donald Trump were in high school at the same time. They are three years apart. Now, in ninth grade, three years is a lot. Uh, As an adult, three years is not a lot. And so the question, I think, will be how have both men aged? Uh, And as we've discussed, I believe and you believe that Joe Biden has aged into wisdom, experience, and empathy that has created a particularly effective world leader. And we've seen that over and over somebody with the energy to go to two war zones, as Mike pointed out, uh, and, and deliver extraordinarily effective American messaging, uh, and to stand up to bullies like Putin and Xi. Uh, by contrast, Donald Trump has aged into bitterness and lunacy. And I think when that contrast becomes the clear deciding factor in American politics, that will that's when this will all kind of click into place for American voters. Uh, on the no labels question, this is a group that is still planning to run a third party uh, presidential bid. Late in, in Recently, they have made clear that they intend to put a Republican at the top of the ticket on the mistaken belief that that mitigates the impact that they'll have, that somehow there'll be less of a spoiler for Biden if, you know, John Huntsman is their nominee, as opposed to Joe Manchin. But either way, they would do terrible damage to the Biden coalition, to the anti-Trump coalition. So we are still pushing as hard as we possibly can to get people to understand how incredibly dangerous it would be for them to nominate somebody. And I'll, I'll just say one more thing about that. They have put out polling data in the last week or so that seems to suggests they they understand they can't possibly win 270 electoral votes. Their own data show that they're not going to win most of the swing states. And if a third-party candidate can't win in a swing state, they sure as hell can't win a state that Joe Biden won by 30 points. They're not going to win in Delaware, which they claim earlier that they could. What that means is they may be now pointing their efforts at what is called a contingent election, where they deny both Trump and Biden 270 electoral votes and they somehow believe that they have a bargaining chip to play. Uh they've actually talked about that on television and that makes the danger you know infinitely higher because then you're talking about a situation where Donald Trump is one of the candidates and the the election is is decided either by faithless electors who change their vote and don't vote for the for the Party that won their state's presidential race, or it gets thrown to the House where Trump wins by vote of uh, delegation. So, it, what they're doing is insanely dangerous. It will lead to the reelection of Trump if they don't stop, and it may do it in the worst way possible.
0: Okay,
1: let's turn our attention to the shit show that is the United States House of Representatives at the moment. Last Thursday, after Lucy and Mike and Rena recorded the roundup. um, House Majority Leader Steve Scalise dropped out of the Speaker's race when it became clear he could not reach the 217 votes he'd need to become Speaker. That paved the way for Trump ally and Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan, uh, we should say insurrectionist ally, uh, to win the Republican Conference's nomination to become Speaker. We are recording now on Thursday morning. So far, Jim Jordan has lost two floor votes for Speaker. As of Thursday, he is pausing his Speaker bid. He has decided not to hold a third vote yet and is expected to back a plan to temporarily empower Speaker pro tempore Patrick McHenry, who's been presiding over all of these votes. On Wednesday, Jake Sherman at Punchbowl News reported that Democrats are thinking about empowering McHenry. The general sense, he says, from House Democratic leadership is that they're for it. They see stopping Jordan from becoming Speaker as a big win for Democrats, but also think it's a win to open the House and get appropriations and new security funding done, you know, actually govern. They also see a potential path to changing the rules about filing a motion to vacate, which, as listeners will remember, was the deal with the devil that Kevin McCarthy made to get his Speakership in the first place, which is that one person can file a motion to vacate, essentially allowing someone to call for his removal by a simple majority vote, Axios is reporting that there have been informal conversations around a temporary speaker that uh, had picked up in recent days. So, um, Matt, I want to lead off with you here uh, because I wonder what you make of the plan to put McHenry in place to pass appropriations, get new funding, you know, for Israel and Ukraine, even if it's just for the next month. Um, where the Democratic consensus is on that, but also just as a procedural matter, I'm not sure that it's possible to have a temporary speaker of the house by rule. I don't, you know, I've been, um, brushing up on my constitutional law lately, thanks to one Akhil Amar professor at Yale. And, uh, I, I, I'm not sure that's a thing. I don't think it's a real thing other than a gentleman's agreement or some other form of levers they might be able to wield. So where are we?
2: Uh, well, I'm going to plead ignorance on the constitutional question. I don't have the faintest idea of whether it's a thing, and it seems like a whole bunch of people in Congress don't know either. Um, what I can say, uh, as somebody said on Twitter, that uh, Patrick McHenry is a human continuing resolution. you know he is <laughs> he is a can being kicked down the road, and it's really good uh, and that's what we're getting is is they're just delaying a decision. Uh, Probably because they're you know so uh, screwed up and in such disarray that they can't figure out what the hell to do. It strikes me as fine as long as it's constitutional and seems like uh, Hakeem Jeffries thinks it's basically fine. If we can get out of this a real continuing resolution that does fund the government for longer than forty-five days and that funds both Israel and Ukraine at robust levels, you know. That'd be a pretty good outcome, I think, On that Democrats would be pretty happy with that. Uh, no one thinks that this House is going to produce any real legislation in the next year and a half. I mean, let's just face it. They're, it's being run by lunatics who have no interest in uh, having the asylum run p- properly. So uh, as long as we can avoid horrible self-inflicted damage like failing to raise the debt ceiling or closing the government down or failing to fund our very close allies in their brutal wars that they're fighting, then I think Democrats would be basically fine.
1: It's worth noting uh, that before Steve Scalise beat Jordan for the nomination last week, Jordan got an endorsement from Donald Trump. Uh, we should also note that the House January 6th committee's final report called him a significant player in Trump's attempt to overturn his election loss to Joe Biden. Uh, Liz Cheney, who was previously the number two House Republican and the vice chair of the January 6th committee, uh, wrote on X. Jim Jordan was involved in Trump's conspiracy to steal the election and seize power. He urged that Pence refused to count lawful electoral votes. If Republicans nominate Jordan to be Speaker, they will be abandoning the Constitution. They'll lose the House majority and they'll deserve to. Um, And uh, now that Jordan is pausing his bid to let someone else come in and clean up the mess, it's important he's reportedly not dropping his bid. So at best he becomes Speaker uh if you become speaker, be after at least three votes and a pause. Mike, what does all this mean for MAGA inside the House?
0: Well, let me speak to that, that, for that last issue first, because this is important. Yeah. Let's be very, and I yeah. said this last week, you know, Scalise isn't going to have the votes and then Jordan's not going to be able to put it together. And the likelihood of the next speaker being somebody that no one's really ever heard of, who probably doesn't want the job will be kind of hoisted up there and put on his own petard to be in the Speaker's role. Let's make no mistake about this. This is the vote for Speaker. This this idea that we're postponing the vote is is the, the gracious way of Jim Jordan saying, I got my ass kicked and I couldn't put the votes together. And by the way, there's nobody in the conference who can. So the guy who's holding the gavel is the speaker. That's what that's what just <coughs> happened, guys. That's what happened today. We <laughs> elected a speaker. And the Democrats rightfully are going to extract something out of that. And it's going to be a forcing them to govern. I think Ukraine gets funded. I think Israel gets funded. And I think the chances of passing a continuing resolution are good because there will still be this kind of bullshit story about Jordan putting the votes together in January. Does that happen? I guess, but is this, this is, this is the vote for speaker. It just happened. Just happened. That's how you get a speaker without 217 votes. Okay. So that's first. The second is the fact that MAGA couldn't put it together and the realization that once you have power and actually have to govern and that reality sets in when nobody really has an interest in governing, or at least the majority of your conference doesn't, this is what happens. Okay. And it's not just what we all knew. It's them finally understanding that they can't get their own shit together. It's all fun and games until they're the ones who have to start cannibalizing each other. And the fact that their personalities and stepping on each other to get clicks and likes and you know stupid resolutions passed on the floor is not what this is about. That's not what the job is really about. Has come home and they've got that that, that recognition is 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 seeping in. The most important element and again, this in many ways is, and I don't want to overstate this because I've I've been looking for this day for eight years. This is when the establishment, MAGA becomes the establishment in the GOP. And the old establishment Republicans are now the rebel forces. And the beautiful part that was just, just poetry was watching the second vote and how they were staggering their mm-hmm. votes. So other members could drop off the yeah. vote and come on the vote and what they were doing was a very sophisticated way of preventing members from being targeted and becoming the face of the opposition extremely smart great great tactical elements that's how you mess with this death Star right that has that 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 Maga has become and there was no response to it other than what they what they've done to you and to me and to others, which is the death threats that try to ruin your reputation, try to attack the people around you, to try to, you know, b- bully you into 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 forcing a vote for Jim Jordan. And it backfired spectacularly. This is the first time in eight years that I have seen this happen, at least since Trump won the nomination in 2016. Now, does that mean that the the swamp fever has broken? Hell, I don't know. I've been too hopeful too many times thinking just a handful of people would do the right thing. But what I did see was coordination between 20, 30 Republican members ready to stagger their vote. If this vote had gone up today, Jordan would have lost even more votes and they would have been different votes while others were able to go up and cover. That's really smart, tactical way of fighting back and pushing back on this Trump Leviathan that has consumed the party. And I say that because finally, finally, there are Republicans, I'm not going to say that they're, 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 they're much beyond cowards the way that they're doing it, but they're doing it for God's sakes, that are finally pushing back and realizing, hey, wait a second, we can actually beat these guys or prevent them from winning, which is essentially beating them. If we're just smart about this and have a little bit of spine and stand up just a little bit, we can push these guys back and beat them. And once that veneer breaks, once that image of invincibility breaks, then the vultures start circling on these groups. They become a lot weaker because you punch the bully in the nose. And finally, he got knocked on his ass. And even though he may get back up, you know, you can knock him down. So more and more people are going to, you know, you know use that kind of a tactic to employ this against the Trumpist elements of the party. Will that happen? I, I don't know. I'm going to put a qualifier on that. But what I, I, I don't know, right? Again, I've been too hopeful too many times that too many people I know and you know will finally stand up and do the right thing. But what I will say is this is unprecedented in the Republican Party. This has not happened in the Trump era. And it was profound and it was significant All of this happening while the leader of their party is in a New York courtroom trying to defend these, you know, obvious claims of fraud. Like this is not a good place for a party entering a national election to be in by any estimation. There's nothing good happening. And so um, I, I just, to me, this is the point where I hope that they unleash the cavalry and start charging the field and finally drive a wedge between these MAGA forces. Will they do that? Probably not but at least they're fighting back and they they know now they can win. They know now they can stop a Trump-endorsed, uh, Trump-backed MAGA speaker. They've done it. I think they'll do it again because at least some of them know that even if the Republican Party is not winning, you can get a Patrick Mahen- Patrick McHenry in there with a speaker's gavel as opposed to a yeah. Jim Jordan.
1: Yeah, I think it's important. I, I think all of that is right, cosign. I think it's also important to note that as smart as the strategic staggering of votes was, and it was brilliant because it was designed to show eroding support for Jordan as the votes continued, as opposed to uh, the opposite. Like the fact that they had to get this sophisticated in the first place in response to the barrage of threats that everybody who opposed to Jordan were getting in the first place is itself stunning and 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 worth underscoring. Um, Don Bacon's wife received anonymous texts pushing her to support Jordan Marionette Miller Meeks, who is both a real person with that name and a congresswoman from Iowa, said in a statement on Wednesday that she received death threats, credible death threats, and a barrage of threatening calls. And here's my favorite. The Washington Post reported that Jordan's close friend Sean Hannity called at least one Republican from a battleground district to push a vote for Jordan a media personality is whipping votes for the speaker of the house. I don't. So (laughs) Matt, my question to you is um, how many heads did Hakeem Jeffries have to break to become leader? (laughs) How many, how
2: many threatening messages did he have to send? (laughs) You know, uh, Democrats are unbelievably united and in array. It's incredible to me. Uh, But here we are. I mean, uh, if you had told me several years ago that Jim Jordan would be the Republicans' candidate for speaker, that the Democrats would be completely united, and that Mitt Romney would be going around slagging every Republican in sight, I would have been pretty surprised by all of those things. Uh, But, uh, you know, uh, in the age of Trump, nothing should be surprising. I I do think we shouldn't skate past the intimidation stuff that's been going on in the Republican party. It's both comic and chilling and a a sign of, uh, as Mike was noting, the unbelievable dysfunction going on in that party. They, They are unfit to govern in every possible respect. And the chaos on the floor is just the, the kind of visible stuff. What's happening below the waterline is this incredibly uh, scary way of proceeding. I mean, government doesn't run this way. You don't run by by bringing down death threats against your colleagues. That is not how legislative bodies work. And uh, I hope that everyone has learned a lesson here, but I'm not hopeful because uh, the far right seems immune to lessons.
1: Okay, gentlemen, now that we're up to speed on a couple of the biggest stories this week, let's talk about what you are watching. Matt, what'd you bring?
2: I am, of course... I'm a one-trick pony, so I am watching the no labels question, and uh, I'm watching to see whether they become more forthright about two things: one, that they're clearly not interested any longer in in nominating a Democrat, which probably takes Joe Manchin off the board; he's been the most prominent of their potential candidates, but also this idea that uh, a contingent election is their fallback position. Uh, they have said that in the past, and if they lean into that, I think everyone should pay attention because it takes an already very dangerous idea and makes it uh, just kind of immeasurably dangerous in this moment.
0: Mike? Yeah, I'm starting to take a renewed look at some of the polling numbers that are coming out. Um- it's number season, right? It's time to start focusing um, about 18 months out and actually get a sense of what's happening here. I've expressed some concern about uh, not just the quality of the polling, but the um, the variability, the bounciness of what's happening um, with, with polling right now. And so um, while I think it's time to start focusing and as the race starts to become real and the matchup starts to become clear, there is still going to be some fluidity um, in the races, I think a, a morning consult poll uh, just came out this morning, um, showing Trump winning in four of six battleground states. Um, look, it's too early to, to to be looking at the horse race poll and start getting anything that's really digestible. Um, but as I've been cautioning, the old metrics of looking at job approval, um, and the generic ballot. And most importantly, the economy um, as the leading factor in political decision making, all three of those have proven to be false in the last three election cycles. And there's a media habit to rely on that because that's what they've always relied on. But those are very, very poor uh, indicators of what is actually happening in the electorate for a whole host of reasons we can talk about later on. But I do want to caution people. polling is important, understanding what it is, what it's meant for, and and what what the intended objective is. But to try to discern anything this early out on who would actually win the race is truly a fool's errand. That's not you're not going to get a good read on this stuff right now. And I still remain very optimistic about the fundamentals of this race and the way that it's shaping up for an incumbent, uh, any incumbent at this point in time, but certainly a democratic incumbent running against this Republican Party and Donald Trump, given everything that's going to be going on in his personal life, legally in the party, and frankly, in the world. I think all of that sets a very good stage for a reelect, despite what I think some of the insider talk about Biden's age is and some of his responses on things. Those, Those just are not going to be determinative in the way voter psychology works. So I just wanted to mention that polling is now going to start becoming a daily thing as we get close. And it's important not to let your blood pressure get too out of whack by watching that horse race every day, because it it will take years off of your life if you try to do that. Is that a firsthand experience kind of thing that you? Oh yeah, I, like I'm really 25. I just look like I'm 58. <laughs> yeah, it's a campaign years on me.
1: <laughs> it's a good flag. Actually, we should bookmark that uh, and come back and maybe have a deeper conversation about the way. Um, polling and the way these traditional metrics of measuring public opinion are not suitable to the moment. Let's come back to that. Um, Let's see. Um, All right. Before we flip over to Politicology Plus, where we are going to talk, speaking of Trump legal battles, we're going to talk about the one that's flying under the radar, which I talked about uh, as a look ahead a couple of weeks ago, which is this um, effort to Uh, decide the question of Trump's eligibility under the 14th Amendment um, and how that's playing out currently in Minnesota. Where can everybody find you on the internet these days, Mike? Find me on
0: threads at Mike Madrid and that's M-Y-K-E-M-A-D-R-I-D. I I, I threw in that Y. So it's at Mike M-Y-K-E Madrid on threads. I love how you just throw at it. You just try at a different platform every
1: every time. Every it's week, great. keep yeah. keep people guessing. <laughs>
2: Matt, how about you? Uh, well, I'm still on the Elon Musk site at Third Way Matt B. I'm also trying out Blue Sky and Threads. Same handle at Third Way Matt B.
1: All right, everybody. Thanks for listening today. If you have questions about anything we discussed today, you can reach us, as always, at at podcastatpoliticology.com. Whether it's an episode idea, a topic recommendation, or just a simple note about what you thought, we love to hear from you, and we might even use it on an upcoming episode. Also, if you can head over to the Apple Podcast app and rate us five stars and leave a review there, we'd really appreciate it. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. I'm Ron Steslow, and I'll see you in the next episode.